أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم وقال ربي شرح صدري ويسر لي أمري وأحلى الأقضى المساني فقولي بسم الله والحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم عباد So we are now dealing with Muhammad Sallam at a time when he was approximately in his 20s So Muhammad Sallam is the kind of character and you need to understand that he was a living and walking example of a person that has been inflicted with many tests and many of us, we have different tests in our life and we pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we don't get inflicted with any test if possible, right? And if Allah tests us with it, then we pray that that's just something that makes us closer to him rather than a punishment. And you see that Muhammad Sallam was orphaned three or four times, right? His father passed away, his mother passed away when he was a couple of years old, then he went to his grandfather, he was only seven, eight years old, and then he went to Abu Talib, and then eventually Abu Talib passed away. And so here is a child that has been moved from one family to another family, no stability and consistently bombarded with changes. And that's not very healthy. And so one of the reasons and the wisdom behind why Allah SWT put Muhammad through this is A, to build up his character and B, for no one to be able to turn around and say, well, he never went through what I went through. People who lose their loved ones, whether they're children, whether they're adults, whether they lose their finances, etc. All sort of inflictions. Muhammad went through every single one of those, but not once, many times, several times. We will come to a point, even when Muhammad when he, you know, when he gets married to Hazrat Khadija, Muhammad had many children, right? of which two of his children were boys and they passed away. The first one, Qasim, was at the age of, what, seven years old, they say, roughly? Because they say in the hadith that he was able to ride a camel. And that's, that's traumatic. If you lose a child at seven years old, you know, Muhammad was put through that. And then to lose another one when he was a child, was about one years old, right, is traumatic for him. And then for him to almost live past all of his daughters, except for Hazrat Fatima, he had to bury all of his daughters. Now that's quite a traumatic experience. So we're learning about this man, Muhammad Sallam, and how he's developing himself. Look, even though he was from a very prestigious background, very prestigious family, he was from a very poor background, very poor background. In his early teens, he learned to take a part-time job as a shepherd, and he would take any work that he possibly could. And he continued doing this. Now he was adopted by his uncle, Abu Talib after his grandfather passed away, Abu Talib was his real uncle, that was his father's older brother by blood. And he looked after him and Abu Talib had a beautiful affection for Muhammad Sallam because of the nature of him. Muhammad Sallam was very quiet, very simple. It wasn't like any other kids running around, grabbing things, being rude, just very calm and very, very sort of controlled. And the other thing about Muhammad Sallam was, being in a society that fundamentally was built upon the worshipping of idols and everything was based around that, your economics was based around that, your decision making was around that. If you wanted to go to war, you would go to the idols to ask them. You know, you were, you know, you cast lots or you play with arrows or you were called the sorcerers. And there were so many different idols everywhere that you would invoke them for every little thing, whether it be marriage, whether it be for children, whether it be for economics, whether it be for business. And just imagine for everything that you do, there's an idol for everything. So you've got interview coming up with JP Morgan, you go and visit this idol in the middle of the high street. And you would, you know, one of the greatest sacrifices you can do, go sacrifice one of your children, right? Go kill one of your children in sacrifice to the gods, right? To get favor, right? So you can benefit from it. This is the mentality of the people. And yet Muhammad Sallam, he hated these idols. 
He naturally kept away from these idols. And even when he used to perform the tawaf, he would even say to his slave, Zayb al-Haritha, not to touch the idols. He was solely and, and, and wholesomely very against them. So even though he was a you know, very beautiful character, in their day and age, he was considered to be unusual. Because he wasn't like all the other kids. He wasn't worshipping idols. He wasn't playing around with them. He didn't have the same interests. And we talked about how he was curious about the parties that used to go on in Makkah. And this just goes to show you that Muhammad Sallam wasn't naturally born as a prophet, that he was built into this. And every time he tried to go into the city of Makkah to listen to the music or to understand what was going on, and their parties were chaotic. There's like, you know, probably going down to Leicester Square or going down to High Street in Newcastle and people are getting drunk and people are behaving in all sorts of ways. Yet when Muhammad Sallam tempted to see what was going on, Allah SWT would just knock him out and he would fall asleep and he would only be woken up by the sun so you can see slowly certain things are happening about Muhammad there's indication that Allah is now preparing him without being explicitly clear you are the prophet it's just slowly preparing him building his character okay and why is that important because nobody can now accuse Muhammad oh but he was favored Right? God favoured him and automatically gave him the strength not to commit haram, not to, you know, to do all the obligations. Allah SWT built him up over a period of time. He had to go through the training. We talked about how he became a shepherd and doing the hard work as a shepherd because a shepherd teaches you patience, it teaches you leadership, it teaches you how to be humble because you have to sit with animals right, that smell and that are dirty and you have to be patient with them. They teach you all the natural attributes that every human being should have. We should all have this. When we're fathers and we're mothers, we have to have patience, we have to have sabr, we have to have, you know, diplomacy, we're going to have leadership, we're going to have ability to protect one another. So Muhammad went through this. He wasn't given money, he wasn't given wealth. So he went through a lot of hardship to get where he needed to. And this is all part of his learning process. So Muhammad went through a much, much harder process to become the leader of the Muslims and effectively in reality, the leader of the nation, the Ummah, Muslims and non-Muslims. So when he got to the age of around the early 20s, Muhammad started taking very small jobs, small little contracts with wealthy people, just herding their sheep, going out and having small money. And he ran into one lady who was looking to hire some shepherds. So he was with his friend and they got a small contract to look after this lady's um, sheep and this lady just happened to be the elder sister of Hazrat Khadija anha. we'll talk about Hazrat Khadija and this is very important for the sisters to know who this woman was and what impact and symbolism she has for us as, as Muslims as well so Hazrat Khadija, in essence, in the community, she was a full-breded Qureshi. Okay, so we talked about the bloodline of different Arabs, and she was the she was a, a, what we call the full-blooded Quraysh, meaning that she has come from the descendants of Hazrat Ismail as well, and she was a businesswoman. She was a businesswoman, right? So she's not locked up at home or anything like that, and she was a very wealthy person because she was very good at dealing with money. She was married twice before. She was married twice before and her husband's passed away. And when the last husband passed away, he was very wealthy. Now what happened or what happens, the status quo of the communities in those days was women had no respect, no power and no control. If your husband passes away, you don't touch a single penny that he has. That money gets passed down to the children. 
And if you don't happen to have any children, then it goes to his nephews. And if they don't have any nephews, then it goes down to their friends and the woman doesn't get anything. Now, in this case, because the husband didn't have many family, virtually none, when he passed away, all the money by the will of Allah ended up with Hazrat Khadija. And so she had this money. Now, it was a good amount of money, but not a huge amount of money. And she was a very intelligent and noble, very highly respected in the, in the community of Makkah. Now, you have to understand, Makkah, even though they are noblemen and they're very sort of sophisticated in terms of their lifestyle, they were very, very jahil. Okay, very jahil. Think about your corrupted leaders, your corrupted politicians, super rich, loads of money, etc. But the way you're thinking and their habits and their extracurricular activities are all haram and disgusting. And they are just, you know, the, the animals of animals, as you could consider. And she still was highly respected because of the way that she was in her character. So she used to make a lot of money by trade and she did what everyone else did which was you buy goods from the north and you sell them down the south and you make your money and then you keep increasing that wealth every year and you keep doing this trade okay and her character was such that a lot of men were attracted to her not just because of the way that she was in terms of her looks but in terms of her character her nobility her honesty and she it was like you can get the most corrupted of men and every corrupted man wants a decent wife right and that's the way it works and it happens vice versa so naturally even the corrupted go towards have the tendency to go for the most pious people as possible because they want security they want stability so Hazrat Khadija you know, attracted a lot of eyes in Makkah. So a lot of the noblemen tried to approach her, get married to her, offer her money, and she was not interested in any of those men. And we can see that how Allah SWT preserved her eventually for Muhammad Sallam. So she would do this business and this trade. But the problem was that every time she hired people, those people will swipe off a little bit from the top. And the way the dealing used to work is you go, you take the goods, you take a certain percentage, right? It's a commission-based trade. So you take the items, you go to the Syria, you buy the goods, you travel back down south again, you go to Yemen, you sell it. But because all the money is cash, there's no due diligence done. Every time the money came back, she would find that a lot of the money disappeared. She would still make money, but it wasn't as healthy or as profitable as she would expect it to be. So her sister, when she hired Muhammad Sallam and this other man uh, to do the, you know, the herding of her sheep, Muhammad Sallam, such is his character, Muhammad Sallam said to his friend, and the, the way they used to do, you do the job and you get paid at the end of the day, cash in hand, all right? So Muhammad Sallam said to his friend, do you mind going to the lady and asking for the money? And he says, well, why don't you come with me? And Muhammad Sallam said, I'm too shy. Yeah, I'm very shy with women and I don't like. And he had that character about him in a male-dominated world where they can look at women like animals and just a piece of meat. And they can do as they please with them. And here you have Muhammad Sallam with full respect and love for all sorts of people. And he said, I don't want to go. I feel embarrassed. I don't feel like asking for her for money. So his friend went there and he went to Hazrat Khadija's sister. And she said, well, where's, where's Muhammad? Why hasn't he come to collect his money? And he said, look, he's a little bit shy. You know, he feels embarrassed asking women and, you know, he doesn't like being in front of them. And... She liked this character because that's an unusual trait to have in such a very hostile you know, environment. So one day Khadija anha, was looking for someone to hire as a tradesperson that can take her goods because it was not befitting for a woman to travel. 
If a woman travels in a caravan, she could get picked up, she could be enslaved, she could be raped, she could be anything can happen to her. So it's not it was never advised that women travel, okay, unless they're with an army of men, which she didn't have. So her sister said to Khadija, look, there's this man, Muhammad, and I like his character. He has honesty. And plus, at the age of 25, in the community now, everyone has referred to him as Al-Amin, as the trustworthy. He has that reputation because of the way that he is. So this attracted Hazrat Khadija to hire him. So she spoke to Muhammad and said, look, I want you to do this and I'll give you a certain percentage. And she said, I'm willing to give you more of a cut if you, you know, do the trade and you're honest and you work with me and everything will be good. So Muhammad agreed. He jumped at the opportunity because going from a shepherd to now become a tradesman, which he's never done before. But what attracted her was the honesty. So with Muhammad when he was when he was hired and took this job on, then he took this first journey to Syria, right? Or close to Syria. Now, Hazrat Khadija had a slave, yeah, by the name of Maysara. And she kept him and said, look, go with Muhammad and just help him and keep an eye on him. Not that I don't trust him, just, you know, whatever needs to happen and report back to me anything. So they take this journey all the way to Syria. Now, some of the hadiths, they talk about that when he arrived in Syria in an area called Basra, now, Busra is a market, a huge marketplace. So if you imagine like in like the Roman Empire, you go in and there's hundreds and thousands of people coming in. They're selling everything, anything and everything. Right. So all the commodities are there. They're selling slaves. They're selling fruit, etc. So Muhammad comes in, he has his goods. And the idea is that he sells the goods and he buys other goods back or he takes back some gold and silver. But what was interesting, at one point, Muhammad took a rest. And it's a very big area, and he decides to sit under one particular tree. And a monk comes out, and he sees this man sitting underneath this tree. And he noticed that this man, Maysara, is with him. So he walks up to this slave and says to him, who is that man sitting underneath the tree? And he says, this is Muhammad, and he's from Makkah. And he says, why do you ask? And he said, because no man has ever sat under that tree unless he's a prophet. So there was a first indication. It was just a it was it was an unattractive tree that most people would never sit on. He said only the prophets ever sat underneath that tree. And that was the first indication. On their way back on their journey, after Muhammad had a very profitable journey, Maysara noticed something very unusual. Everywhere Muhammad went, there was always a cloud following him. And cloud that would always cover him and shade him from the heat. And at one point, the hadith wanted to say that he almost saw what looked like two angels sheltering him. So when they arrived back in Makkah, and Hazrat Khadija found out how well Muhammad she was very impressed, and with his honesty, because there was a lot of money that he could have taken, but he didn't. And knowing that this would naturally attract a woman, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with a man and a woman feeling attracted. It's what you do with that attraction is when you, it becomes problematic, right? You have to keep this within check. It's absolutely fine. So when her sister the first time said he's honest, this attracted Hazrat uh, Khadija. So she felt something for this man. And then when he comes back and he has delivered the goods and the honesty, she gets more attracted to him as a personality. Then she asked her slave, so what happened? She goes, something very unusual. You know, he's sitting underneath the tree and this man says only prophets sit there. And the second thing is, I swear by Allah, I noticed that there were like two angels that were always sheltering him or this cloud. So this made her feel that there's something very special about Muhammad Sallam.
So over a period of time, as they started doing more trade, she became more interested in Muhammad as an individual, to the point that there's no doubt that she had feelings for him. And there's not, again, there's nothing wrong with feel, falling in love with someone and having attraction, as long as you don't commit haram and you do everything in the right way. And so how did she do it? So Khadija at one point, when she was sitting there and she was talking to her best friend, she was talking about marriage. And her friend said to her, would you not be interested in someone like Muhammad? Now there's another narration that talks about Hala was also saying, her older sister was saying that, what about Muhammad as an individual? So Khadija's best friend came and saw Muhammad's friend and Muhammad there with some of the camels. And she said to Muhammad what do you think about marriage with Khadija? And he was, he's such a humble individual and he didn't say, no, I'm not interested and so forth. And this is one thing you need to understand. Again, there are, it's a, it's a man-dominated world, right? And a man can go off and he can go with any woman, not even under marriage. And yet Muhammad was, he was what, 23, 24 years old? And okay, now what everyone understands is Hazrat Khadija was in her 40s, which is actually incorrect. It was, this was only narrated by one scholar who said that she was about 45. Actually, her real age, more closer, most scholars have agreed that she was around about 35 years old. Okay, about 10 years. Because you've got to think logically, how many children did she have? And if she was 45 and she had eight children, what age would she have to be then before she passed away? And was she capable of having children at that age as well? So you've got to think logically. So when you're married twice and you're at the age of 35, girls used to get married in their teens. So obviously that is like, she's old. Why would you go for her? Why wouldn't you not go for somebody else? And Muhammad's response to the woman was, why would she be interested in me? Everyone knows her reputation. Everyone, you know, she's a very, she's in high esteem. People know that she is of great nobility. She has a huge amount of respect. Many men are after her. I'm a shepherd. Not even a shepherd. I'm an orphan. Four times. What have I got to offer? I have no business. I have no money. I live with my uncle. Okay. I herd sheep. Why would she be interested? So the conversation went on further. Khadija's best friend then said to Muhammad well, she's extending her offer for marriage. And that was interesting. Normally it's the man that asks for marriage, but Hazrat Khadija asked now for marriage for this man. And she wasn't really interested after two marriages, right? Most women are done by then. They'll more be done halfway through one marriage, right? Most of the time, they'll be able to get rid of most of us. But go through two and then look, uh, and then interest in the third. You know, subhanAllah, she wasn't interested in anyone except for Muhammad and Muhammad Salam was such a guy at 25, 23 years old, right? You don't need permission from anyone. He went running back home, met his uncle Hamza and went to Abu Talib and says, I have an offer for marriage from this woman Khadija. What do you think? Should I do it or not? And they said, son, she is a woman of nobility and of your character, you'll be a perfect match. So the agreement was done that they were going to get married. Uh, and there's a whole story about how they got married and he offered a very small number in terms of a dowry because, it's, you know, for him, it was only like maybe a few hundred dollars hour worth, a few hundred pounds, what you want to call it. You know, it was sheep and so forth. He didn't have a lot and that was acceptable. And she married Mahamsa Salam. Now, 
one thing you have to understand about Hazrat Khadija is it is true that in reality behind every successful man is a strong woman and if you wanted to use that example right anywhere in the world you would only have to go back to Muhammad Hazrat Khadija was very mature very sensible and a very strong individual to the point that she had a cousin and we mentioned her cousin before his name was Warqa bin Nufail now Warqa bin Nufail was a very old man he was a cousin but he was much much older and he was blind he was an Arab but he was considered what we call in the land of idolatry the mushriks the people who worship idols he was the only one of few what we called Hanif and Hanif means true followers of the monotheistic belief so the people who actually believe in Allah the one Allah no association and because he had adopted the belief of Hazrat Ismail which was the monotheistic belief he also became a Christian and followed Isa bin Maryam and he converted all the Christian books translating them from Aramaic into Arabic and he was studying the scriptures in a lot of details so just so you if your information right Muhammad is mentioned in the Gospel, in the Barnabas, okay? It is mentioned in the Torah. The Bible has changed many times, but there's different versions of them. The original scriptures of the Bible, the Barnabas and the, let's say, the Gospel, for example, they will have a mention of Muhammad in the book. They have a mention of it. Isa bin Maryam describes it. After me will come a brother, a brethren of mine. And who's that brethren? Because if Jesus goes all the way back to Isaac and Isaac's father is Abraham and Abraham's other son is Ismail so Isaac and Ismail are, are basically brothers then the descendant of Ismail is Muhammad and that makes him his brother his cousin right so he mentioned this and it was then in the Torah the Christians they got rid of this because as it went through power the leaders took control of the religion of Christianity and they can decide what goes in and what goes out and so the kings, what they used to do was if there were certain rules or there were certain moral values in Christianity that prevented the kings from taking advantage of the poor, the taxes, the economical growth, etc, 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 even punishment, they would remove these rules yeah, and laws out of the Bible and sometimes out of the Torah, okay, the, the book of the Jews. But the original scriptures had this. And you can still find it today. If you go back and search the Barnabas and the Gospels and so forth, you'll find the reference for Muhammad Sallam. So Muhammad Sallam is now married to Hazrat Khadija. And Khadija had such a character that she was a phenomenal support for Muhammad Sallam. Now, a lot of people tend to think when Muhammad Sallam received revelation that all of a sudden he was the greatest prophet. In the world. Yes, he was the greatest prophet, there's no doubt. And he was the greatest individual, strong in character, strong as a warrior, strong as a leader, etc. But he had to build up to that. To the point that when he received revelation, he wasn't sure whether it was shaitan that came to see him. And his wife had to tell him, no, a person with your stature and character and honesty, no way a shaitan will come to do this to you. This would have to be someone of good nature, meaning an angel. And at the times when he found it very tough to do his dawah, the times when he found it tough to do his dawah, she would give support. Now we know later on, after the death of Hazrat Khadija, one thing to remember is when Muhammad got married to Khadija, he never married any other woman until Hazrat Khadija passed away. At the age of 25, okay, he gets married to Khadija.
And eventually at the age of 42, he then becomes a prophet. And then a few years after that, not very long after that, she passes away. So a very long time, and it was customary at that time that men will go off and have several wives and they will have concubines and they will have slave girls, etc. Muslim didn't have that. He just had one wife, Khazar Khadija, who he loved immensely. And when he eventually married Hazrat Aisha, who was much younger, she would get very jealous of Hazrat Khadija to the point that one time she said something to Muslim that angered him. And she said, why do you always talk about her? A woman has teeth falling out, etc. And you know, her hair is falling out. When Allah has given you someone young as ripe as me. And Muhammad responded to her and said, when no one supported me, she was by my side. When I had no money and the world boycotted me, she supported me with her money. And when everyone turned against me, she stood by my side. She did what you couldn't do. You didn't have that blessing. She did that and she stayed with me. And his love was such that there was another hadith that narrated that once Muhammad was in his house and he had a habit that every time he would sacrifice an animal, he would carve a piece of that animal and he would send it to the family of his wife Khazar Khadija after she passed away and he would always as a remembrance. And once Khadija's sister came to visit Muhammad and she would walk like her and Hazrat Aisha said I could not believe the look on my husband's face he went pale because immediately he's like you know all of a sudden you think oh my god is that my wife Khadija right and obviously it wasn't right because it was she'd passed away but all of a sudden the flush of the memories because of the way she walked just reminded him of Hazrat Khadija so he would always always remember her and Probably the most astounding part of really about Hazrat Khadija's personality. Did you know the angels would not enter the house of any of the other wives of Muhammad right? Because it was a private affair. Muhammad is with his wife, angels don't come in. Except for the house of Hazrat Khadija. Angel Jibril came in to give salam to Khadija and said, Allah sends his salam on you. Right? I mean, how beautiful is that? And Angel Jibreel says to Khadija through Muhammad he said, tell Khadija that Allah sends Islamat on her and tell her that Allah has prepared a house in Jannah for those where there is peace and quiet and it's beautiful. Already getting the guarantee. Because of the little time that she spent with him, the support that she gave him shows of the character that she was, right? So two things out of here. Number one, right? Women have a huge amount of respect in our religion and any man that mistreats or looks down upon them, it is a great sin. If your prophet never done this, why would you do this? Women, partners and your spouses will become a support to you if you allow them to become a support. They don't need you to talk down to them. They don't need you to, you know, push them or dictate to them. You need partnership. To be successful and that marriage was a partnership it was not a dictatorship he went to do his work she supported him fully she even advised him she even gave him the seer you understand so that he could become successful in the work that he'd done so this was the beginning of this beautiful relationship that they literally fell in love with each other and it was effectively a love story okay and that relationship then obviously just and i just imagine that it was only through Hazrat khadija that he received children the blessing of children Right, and we'll talk about the the children of Muhammad Salman at a later stage. 
the other story that I wanted to cover, the another, other major event was the last major event before Muhammad became a prophet that we know and that was recorded is the rebuilding of the Kaaba. Okay, and this is good historical context so you understand. So we know the Kaaba was built at the time of Ibrahim Islam. And there's many different stories about when the Kaaba was first built or at least the symbolization of the Kaaba. So the stories of the previous religions of the, you know, the Israelites, so we call it, or the people of Yaqub said that Allah SWT ordered Adam Islam to build the Kaaba where it is. That was the first instance. But we don't have strength for that hadith because it's a story that comes from the Israelites. What we do hold on to is the fact that Ibrahim Islam was ordered by Allah to build this house. And when Allah gave them the order, this is what Allah said to Ibrahim Islam. He says, I want you to build me a house. Uh, Ibrahim Islam panicked. Why did he panic? If somebody asks you to build a house, if a king comes to ask you to build a house, how are you going to do it if you never built and you want to make it absolutely perfect? So Angel Jibril came down and guided Ibrahim Islam with his son, Hazrat Ismail, to build the Kaaba. And they built the Kaaba. Now the Kaaba is not the size that you see it today. It was long. Okay? And the way I want you to picture it, if you understand, if you've been to Umrah, if you've been to Hajj, if you look at the Kaaba, there are two posts outside it. That was the original size of the Kaaba. To the extent that they always say that you can't pray inside the Kaaba, because that's only, unfortunately, for the kings, right? But if you pray in where the Maqam Ibrahim is, if you go there, that's like praying inside the Kaaba. And that was a blessing in itself, so that you get the same reward. So what happened was, Ibrahim Islam built it, and there's stories about how many times it got destroyed, it got damaged, right? So there was there was probably two instances prior to when Muhammad Sallam's time that the Kaaba was destroyed and they rebuilt it again. Okay, and you've got remember it's just rocks, there's no mortar, they build it up, there's hardly any roof. Okay, so they will be always exposed to the elements, and you've seen it, you've seen it on YouTube. Look at the videos, and you will see literally people are flooded outside the Kaaba. Now they've done the irrigation, they've done the drainage, but literally the water will come up to your waistline. That's how it used to be all up until the 1970s, 1980s, even 1990s, I think, as well. Water comes in flooding. So the Harim is okay, but if you go around the outer streets, they still get flooded quite badly. So that continues. At the time of Muhammad the Kaaba was destroyed out of floods. There were two instances that caused the, the damage. In those days, when, the, when you had the Kaaba, even up until the 1970s, apparently, the houses used to be just outside of the Kaaba. So people, women used to cook. And the Kaaba was always clothed, right? The black cloth you got. So before it was a Yemenese cloth, it was then another cloth and cloth and somewhere else. And the cloth caught fire and it damaged one part of the Kaaba and it got rebuilt. And then there was a flooding damage as well. Now my understanding is that when the fire caught, they didn't rebuild it then because it was small cosmetic damage. And then the flood happened and the roof was caving in, okay? Now remember one thing, they symbolize the Kaaba even though they are idol worshippers because the Quraysh come from the religion of Ismail, right? They come from the religion of Ismail and they took what was this monotheistic belief and over time because they did not stick to the source of the revelation, they bolted on things to their religion, right? Exactly what happens today. People harmlessly turn around and they say, oh, but it's nothing wrong with doing that, right? Because the Prophet never said you can't do that. And then they start adding things onto their religion, right? And it seems harmless. 
But 20 years from now, tomorrow somebody can turn around and say, when we hear the Prophet's name, why can't we do the Nazi salute? Prophet never forbid it, right? Na'udhu Billah, right? And you can add that in. So that becomes problematic. So if you start adding in things that the Prophet never taught you, you can see where you're going to end up. So they symbolized the Kaaba. Please understand this. They accepted Allah as the ultimate God. But they said, but there's other gods underneath him, one that gives you children, one for your business, one for your wealth, one for your wife, one for etc. etc. You've got different gods. And they all report to this one God. And the angels are really the daughters of Allah. This is their thinking. So they will still do the tawaf, and they had two idols outside the Kaaba, right, where they would go and they kept on touching them as part of their tawaf. So they mixed the religion of Islam with their tawud, with their kufr, and they're completely lost. So obviously when the Kaaba got destroyed, they have to put this back again. So the Quraysh at that time, they got together. Muhammad was at the age of about 35 now. He was married to Hazrat Khadija, he's 35 years old. And he's involved in rebuilding of this Kaaba. Now what happened was Caesar had sent a shipment, right? A big boat with very expensive wood, marble, granite, you name it, to come down the sea to Yemen to build a church that the Persians had destroyed. Now in the midst of all of this that happened, if you remember the very first stories we talked about the Yemen and the Romans, right? And, and the Persians, how they were taking control over it. While we're talking about the story of Muhammad and his prophethood, please don't forget, world wars are still happening around him. Wars between the Roman Empire and the Persian Empire are still happening. War between China and India is still happening. War between the Persians and the Yemen and the control of Yemen is still happening. So churches are being destroyed. So he now sends a boat. The boat capsizes and basically it ends up at Jeddah, right? What you know is Jeddah, the port Jeddah. So the Quraysh, they don't have money, right? Because they suffer from famine as well. They have money, but the money comes from haram means. Prostitution, slavery, interest, etc, etc. So they agreed that in order to build this Kaaba, we should not use haram money. They had that much common sense. So once you take out haram money, they realize 80% of the money they have is haram. Right? So they left with 20% of the funds of Makkah. So they go down to this port, Jaddah, where obviously you've got your looters and your pirates who have taken everything and they're selling them. So they come and they buy all the goods. They have a guy from Alexandria in Egypt who's a carpenter and they use him to help them to reconstruct the Kaaba. So they started reconstructing the Kaaba and what they had done was because they only had 20% of their assets, they had to build the Kaaba smaller. Now do you understand why the Kaaba was small, right? And not the full size. So they ran out of funds. So they rebuilt the roof. And the other thing, if you notice, if you notice the door in the Haram is right in the middle of the building. It's not like you can walk into a normal door. Yeah, it's probably stuck up here somewhere. So they did that because in those days, people used to sneak in and nickel the jewelry and leg it. This way, if it's higher, it's harder to get up and they can secure it. Now you just imagine today, if that door was down here, if people rush like that they do to the black stone, can you imagine that door? Everybody will be inside, you won't be able to stop them. So they built this Kaaba, they prepared it. Now what was interesting is, before they took down the Kaaba, they all got scared, they got petrified. Because 
If I said to you, can you take a pickaxe and start knocking down the Kaaba? What would you think? You would think, I'll be cursed for the rest of my life taking down God's house. So they were all scared to do this. So Walid bin Mughara, one of the greatest tribal leaders, he said, let me start. So they thought, okay, let him take the pickaxe and start breaking it and let him finish. Then we wait for one night and then we'll see if he gets cursed or not. Right? And if he doesn't get cursed, then we're all in the clear. So he doesn't get cursed. They think, right, it's great. And then they start taking it down and they start building up the Kaaba. So now when the Kaaba is done, they come to the bit where they get to the black stone. Now, please keep in mind, the Quraysh, all of the tribes of the Quraysh join together because they want to be part of rebuilding that Kaaba. Now when it came to the black stone, because they removed it, each tribe wanted to have the honour of putting that black stone in. And you know the story of the black stone that Injil Jibreel had ordered Ibrahim Islam to put the black stone in there. And so there's different narrations that the stone came from heaven and Jibreel already put it in there. But actually the more stronger story was it was a stone that was in the, on the ground that Hazrat Ismail and Ibrahim Islam found it and they picked up together and they put it in. So that had a massive fight. And it wasn't just a big fight. This fight was going to lead on to generations of war, to bloodshed. So they went into the assembly, you know, the Nadwa, uh, where it's the parliamentary assembly, and they were debating, they're shouting, they're screaming, they're swearing at each other, they're throwing things, you know, they've gone mad, right? We want the rights, we have the rights, our father was close to it, such and such, etc. Our grandfather did this and so forth. So they said, okay, we'll tell you what, the next man that walks through that door, he will be the one to decide who puts it in. And lo and behold, who was the one that walked through the door? Muhammad Sallam. And when Muhammad Sallam walked in, they were all happy because he was known as Al-Amin, the trustworthy one, and they knew his character. And it's amazing how they respected him and loved him. But the moment he became a prophet, they all turned against him. So when Muhammad Sallam walked in, they said, you decide for us. And look how smart Muhammad Sallam was. He said, take a big piece of cloth, pick the stone up, put it in the cloth, and each tribal leader from each tribe, you take the corner of the cloth and you carry it there. And then when they carried it there, then Muhammad Sallam picked up the stone and put it in. So Muhammad Sallam was given the honour of also putting that stone in. Okay, so here, a couple of things to remember. First of all, the fact that these guys were ready to go to war and they left the decision to someone like Muhammad Sallam, who later on, not very long from this point, now they're all turned against him. They so badly turned against him that when his son, Al-Qasim, died, right? When his son died, and it's traumatic when you have a child that passes away. It's traumatic. Abu Jahal was singing and dancing through the streets saying, thank God, right? He's got no male progeny left in him. This man, Muhammad, who claims he's a prophet, he doesn't even have a male child because you have to have a male child for your project to exist. That's how much they turned against him in a very quick period of time. And just for your historical context as well, so you know, and we'll finish off here, inshallah, as well, that later on, the Kaaba did get rebuilt twice. Now, what happened was, when the Kaaba was built smaller, Muhammad Sallam, there's a hadith in Bukhari that Hazrat Aisha narrated, and she said, when I said to the Prophet Muhammad regarding the Kaaba, he said that if it wasn't for the fact that your people, the Ummah, were newly converted, okay, I would have knocked down the Kaaba and rebuilt it back onto the Rukans, the pillars of Ibrahim Islam, so back where it was. 
But I don't want to do this because people are very emotional and they could just, you know, go crazy. So I will leave it. I don't want to create any sort of anxiety and offence to them. Later on, then you had the war between the Umayyads and the Abbasids, right? So the, when the Umayyads came in, Al-Hajjaj was one of the Khalifs and he was a rotten, rotten egg, this individual. He was a tyrant. And Hazrat Zubair, Abdullah bin Zubair, was one of the Sahabi. His parents were Sahabis as well. And he was almost like declared as temporary Khalif because of the corruption. Al-Zubair actually knocked it down and then rebuilt it because he said, I want to fulfill the hadith of Muhammad So he knocked the Kaaba down and rebuilt it on the original build of Ibrahim When Al-Hajjaj came with his army, he didn't care. He was a tyrant. He came in, catapulted stones and rocks and everything, destroyed the Kaaba, everything, and got hold of uh, Al-Zubair anhu and cru literally crucified, stuck him on a crucifix literally cruci crucified him to show people and then he rebuilt the Kaaba back to its small size again and then later on when the when the Umayyads came into into power it made the Basid sorry when they came into power it was then the Khalif uh, Malik that came in and actually the Khalif asked Imam Malik at that time Imam Malik was one of the famous scholars um, and we're talking about a few hundred years after the death of Muhammad Sallam and he was one of the scholars uh, of Medina and he said look my desire is that I take this down and I rebuild it back to where Muslim and Imam Malik this way the fit comes in and he's very smart and he said no he goes because I do not want to make the Kaaba a toy of the leaders and the kings that they should not feel like whenever they desire they should knock that down the house of Allah this needs to stop and leave it as it is and this is the wisdom of Allah that the fact that it's small and you and me can't get into that Kaaba because it's only left for the uh, monarchy, right? Because we're not worthy. There's that little part, yeah, outside, which is actually still considered to be the inside of the Kaaba just because we haven't built around it. And so therefore, we still get the blessing and the opportunity to pray in there. Is that? So this is the blessing of, uh, you know, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has bestowed and everything is planned in that sequence. So inshallah next week we'll continue and we'll start touching on upon the uh, the revelation. So jazakallah khair inshallah we'll see you next week. Assalamu alaikum.